Happy Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for being here to celebrate with us. Um, I hope you're ready to participate a little. Uh, when I say he is risen, you say he's risen indeed. You ready? He's risen. He's risen indeed. All right. He's risen. Amen. Well, um, what a beautiful day, again, to gather, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Um, as we move through this series, uh, Understanding Jesus, and Ken walked you through this graphic up here, you know, Jesus oftentimes really does show up in our lives in the dark spaces. The places that seem like they're with no hope, and we're not sure if we're going to make it, or if there's really a future, that is so often where Jesus shows up and meets us in person to connect with us and to help us. Um, so, much, uh, so much of the time, that's what we need. We certainly see this in John's gospel as we move into the 20th chapter, which is the resurrection chapter where John unfolds for us the way things happened on that Sunday um, after Jesus was crucified on Friday, you know, on our Good Friday service, we um, emphasized and focused in on the crucifixion where Jesus on Friday was sentenced to death. He had um, gone before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. They had falsely charged, uh, trumped up charges on him and accused him of those things and said he deserves to die. And then he took him before Pilate where he was, uh, in spite of Pilate's inability to find any guilt in him, he still sentenced him because of the persistence of the Jews. And Jesus went to trial where he was beaten and then hung on a cross. And as he hung on the cross, we know that crucifixion, um, that uh, form of execution happens slowly. And it really is um, asphyxiation or uh, running out of oxygen. Because as a person is hung on a cross with their hands outstretched and their feet nailed they slowly lose strength and they sag on those hands and their uh, lungs become trapped. They're, they cannot breathe. Their diaphragm is contracted. And so they have to push up to catch a breath and they stand up as long as they can to breathe and then they once again fall under the weight. And so slowly over time, Jesus, as he hung on the cross at Golgotha, we know that he gave up his spirit, the Bible tells us, after uttering those famous words, it is finished. That Jesus on the cross paid for sin. This was his mission. This is what he came to do. And after accomplishing it, gave up his spirit. But we pick up the story Sunday morning in John 20, where the scripture reads this way. This way. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. She found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. This is the first of four responses to the resurrection we see in this chapter. And this first response I call the anxious response. Mary Magdalene was a uh, I'm a, a part of a group of women who followed Jesus, traveled with him. Um, they had been healed by him, and so they were contributing to his ministry. Mary Magdalene herself had had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. Having undergone this healing, 
this restoration, she traveled with him. Likely she had some resources and she was generous to support Jesus' ministry because of what Jesus had done for her. She was also present through Jesus' trial, watching the whole escapade, seeing Jesus condemned to death. She was there as he was beaten, um, as the flesh was torn from his body. She watched as he carried the cross to Golgotha, as they nailed Jesus to the cross, and as he hung there, having his last breaths. She was there. She saw him die. She was a part of the group that took Jesus down from the cross and placed him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, the tomb of a wealthy man. She was a part of the process. Mary had been there watching the whole thing. She'd been abused by demons. These demons of, um, had, had wrecked her and had destroyed her. Under that oppression, she had been pushed down and beat down. Jesus had healed her, releasing her from that oppression. She obviously felt safe around him, traveling with him, the one who had cast those demons out and who protected her from their abuse, and yet now he had died. What would happen to her with Jesus not there anymore to protect her? I'm sure filled with some anxiety and fear, she went with a group of ladies on Sunday morning just to go to the tomb to check on Jesus Really with no hope, no expectation, filled with fear and anxiety, she went. And as she rounded the corner and she saw um, a troubling, alarming sight, the stone rolled away from the mouth of the tomb. This shook her already sensitive nerves and her flight response kicked in and she ran. She ran looking for anyone. She ran into John and Peter, two of the stronger disciples, and she gave them their alarming news. They've stolen his body. An anxious response to the resurrection. I wonder if you, as many in our world as I have at times, struggled with perhaps anxiety, depression, fear. I'm sure Mary, though she'd been released of that, having gone through the loss of Jesus, was filled with fear again. Could she really be saved from that fear and anxiety, that internal battle that may or may not be demons at times in us? Maybe you have struggled with that and wonder, could Jesus really save me? She'd been abused and mistreated. Again, Jesus had cast out those demons, but once again, she was filled with fear. That's an intense battle to go through for anyone. And she was certainly there again. Seeing that stone rolled away was enough to make her run. She ran to Peter and John, finding two of the disciples that perhaps reflect the second response that I see in this passage that many of us have, and that is an analytical response. When they heard from Mary the alarming news that had made her run from the tomb, they ran towards it. They needed to see the evidence. They want to check out for themselves what had happened. And so they raced to the tomb. Uh, John tells us that he ran faster than Peter. He got there first. He stooped down and looked in, afraid to go in. He saw the burial cloths that Jesus had been wrapped in that were there lying intact without a body in them. But Peter, as he got to the tomb, he ran down the steps into the cave and he explored the scene and he saw the evidence, noting that burial cloth 
that had mummified Jesus. It was there, it was intact, but it was empty. They saw, he saw the cloth that had covered Jesus' head folded and placed to the side neatly. These men saw the evidence. After Peter got inside, John says he ran inside as well. And perhaps a little less emotional, though I'm sure it was, looking at the evidence, they see proof of the resurrection. And when they remember what the scripture said, they become convinced. They see the facts. When we read in John 20, this account, being a little more analytical, this is how it goes. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stopped uh, and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For until, they, until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Analytical. Maybe you fit into that spot. Maybe that's the kind of person you are. Maybe that's how you've looked at this. Needing to see the evidence, looking for it. Is there evidence to show that Jesus rose from the dead? Is there evidence to show that Jesus is in fact God? The world is full of these analytical types, a little less emotional, a little more thought, uh, thinking. There's individuals like Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel who have become prolific leaders in the Christian church because of their journey or path to salvation involved this process, involved this process of looking at the evidence, seeking it out. And they found as they searched overwhelming evidence that took them from a place of skepticism, disbelief to a place of being absolutely convinced that there is no other way, that this is the truth. This is the role of the analytic. It's interesting how God provides for these men evidence. The truth is that Jesus, as he rose from the dead, he did not need the stone rolled away from the entrance in order to get out of the tomb. His body in its resurrected form could walk through walls, as we see later in this chapter. He was not bound by the physical realities that we are. Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away, and yet God rolled the stone away. Why? Why was the cloth folded up and put neatly to the side? I believe this is evidence for these disciples who needed to see some facts. They were able to see and then become convinced. Analytics need evidence. I find it interesting that a lot of people think you have to suspend your... Uh, Thought You have to suspend reality and take a leap of faith into the unknown to believe that Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead. And yet, in the scriptures, we see over and over again evidence presented. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, writing the church in Corinth, he reminds them, what you believed in in Jesus was presented to you, and yes, you believed it to be true, but you were given evidence in order that you would believe. He reminds them that 500 of Jesus' disciples saw him at one time after the resurrection. He reminds them that the disciples, all who knew Jesus, saw Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Even James, Jesus' brother, skeptical 
James, who didn't believe in Jesus. He's my brother. I grew up with him. You know, I used to give him noogies. He's not some kind of Messiah. And yet James was convinced, became a leader in the church. We have the book of James written by him because he saw the resurrected Christ. No, suspension of intellect is not what's required to believe. There's more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than really anything else that's ever happened in history. What it takes is a person engaging the evidence to look, to see what's there, and then the faith, yes, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, as these disciples spread the news amongst their close friends, they seemed to gather as a group, all except Thomas and Judas, who had uh, denied Jesus and Um, The rest of them gather in a room Sunday evening, and the text tells us they were there behind locked doors. They had started to think about the consequences of what had happened. They had started to think about what might happen to them, and they became afraid. And so they get in a room somewhere, and they lock the doors, and they're huddled in there, scared of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. This is a response that I call the timid response to the resurrection a little bit of a fearful response. People with a timid response, like the um, disciples, wonder what the consequences might be of them being associated with Jesus. Perhaps these guys had become aware of the rumors that were being spread. Matthew's gospel tells us that the Pharisees hatched a, um, a plot with the guards who had been watching the tomb to spread a rumor that the disciples had come in the night and stolen Jesus' body. And perhaps these disciples had heard that these rumors were spreading, implicating them in some kind of hoax. They were afraid. What's going to happen if we get associated with Jesus? People are beginning to become aware that his body's gone, the tomb is empty, and they're going to think we stole him, and the religious leaders are out to get us, and the world's out to get us, and so they hunker back in their hiding place. John 20 verse 19 says that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. In our world today, there are many who know that Jesus is the son of God. They believe that he was resurrected from the dead, but their timid response to the gospel means that they kind of want to hide out, not really be identified with Jesus. And so their timid response Keeps, their, keeps them in the closet with their faith. And so they, they're a believer, but they don't spend a lot of time with other believers in places they could be associated with Jesus. They just kind of go, hey, I want to keep my faith to myself. It's between me and God. They say things like, um, I don't need to be in church to worship. I worship God best outdoors in the, in the wildlife, in the wilderness, in the mountains. This response is a timid response. It's a fear of the association with Jesus, what that's going to mean for my life. Am I going to lose friends? Is my family going to think I'm crazy? Am I going to be rejected? Is my business going to take a hit because I'm associated with Jesus? What's going to happen to me in that fearful reaction keeps them hidden behind locked doors with their faith? My faith is private. I don't need to tell anybody. It's between me and God. Probably all of us have been in that spot at some point in our lives. I know I have. And yet, it's a place where too many people spend too much of their life hiding out 
keeping their faith to themselves. This really isn't the call of Jesus on our lives. Jesus said, if you don't acknowledge me before men, I won't acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Though there's a cost to going public with our faith, there certainly is. There's also a cost to keeping it to ourselves. Protection of God and of God's people is not realized by the individual that keeps their faith to themselves. They become more open to the attacks of the enemy in isolation. Trying to keep their faith private ends up hurting them even more. There's no opportunity to experience the power of God, the work of God. The protection of God, see, is greater than the persecution of men. But living with a timid response keeps us from experiencing that reality. The final response that we see in John chapter 20 is by a disciple who was not present with that group hiding out, scared of the religious leaders. He wasn't there. We don't really know where he was at, but he wasn't with them. He was absent when Jesus showed up and revealed himself to the disciples. He didn't get to experience that. And so even though he is told by them, hey, we saw Jesus, he's risen, he refuses to believe. His response I call the skeptical response. This is Thomas, of course. Thomas was the doubter. We know him as the one who doubted, but he really is and takes the role of a skeptic. And the skeptic says, I'm not going to believe until I have the proof that I want. I'm not going to believe because somebody else says they saw something. No, no, no. I need to see it for myself. I need the evidence I need in order to believe. Overwhelming evidence. 500 people saying, yeah, we saw, we saw it. That's not enough for the skeptic. <laughs> you can have empirical evidence, facts on paper. It's all there. Nope, that's not enough. The skeptic says, no, I need to see something more. I need to see something different. I need the proof that I need. What I've discovered in my life interacting with a lot of individuals is oftentimes what's behind the skeptic's questions is real hurt. It's a hang-up. Sometimes it's pride. But it's not really a lack of evidence. It's just a lack of getting what I want and an unwillingness to step forward and interact with Jesus. And so I keep him out here with these questions that I've come up with or I've heard that seem to stump Christians, you know? They seem to stump other believers, so they keep them back so I don't have to let Jesus in and I don't really have to engage. Thomas was in this spot. Perhaps he was hurt and offended that Jesus wasn't there, didn't show up, right, didn't wait for him. Perhaps uh, that was a problem. Perhaps he had other doubts and questions. We know Thomas did. And so because he wasn't there and didn't see what they saw, he said, I'm not going to believe. He wanted and needed a touch from Jesus. Verses 24 and 25 of John 20 read this way. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. The skeptic is famous for these kinds of sayings. Well, you know, we really can't know for sure. There's no way to know for sure because no one that was there is still alive, right? The evidence really isn't that sound. In fact, you know the Bible is just written by a bunch of people 
calling it a holy book or scripture is ridiculous. It was written by men. We know that. And, and, you know, by the way, it's full of errors because it's been passed down over thousands of years. And so, you know, it's not trustworthy. You know, it's not something you really look to. The Bible isn't intended to take literally. <laughs> I mean, come on. And so there's kind of a smugness. There's kind of an attitude that says, yeah, you, you, you people that believe you're just soft-headed, right? It, it, you know, religion, I had one guy tell me, it's the opioid of the masses. You know, it's just needed to keep everybody in shape. It's something that we need, but it really isn't true. That kind of pseudo-intellectualism, right? It comes with this skeptical approach. And it, it's this idea that I have these questions and answers and, or, or questions that nobody can answer. They can't be answered. And so you know that science has proven that evolution is the way in which we came to be. That account in Genesis is an old-fashioned fairy tale, right? Those kinds of responses is the way a skeptic responds. What I have found, again, is that there are typically hurts behind those questions. It's really not a lack of evidence. It's a lack of an interaction with Jesus. So often these folks are hurting, and we've all been there. And what needs... Uh, what they need is a healed heart, not just more evidence. Four different responses to the resurrection. Four different responses, four different needs, four different kinds of people. And probably like me, you can find yourself maybe in all of these as I can at different times in my life. Will Jesus meet these needs? Will he answer these questions? Will he show up and help these individuals move from just a, a question, a concern, an issue to a place of being able to trust in Jesus, to have a relationship with him? Good morning, everyone. You guys can be seated. Thank you for being with us here at Mitchell Brean celebrating Resurrection Sunday. One thing I love about this section of scripture we're in in John chapter 20 is Jesus says this three times to these various groups of people that he encounters. And he says, peace be with you. And one thing that we're all searching for in this life, I believe, is peace. But not a peace that's circumstantial or something that's coming and going, but something that really happens in the depths of our hearts. Something that can transcend our suffering or our current circumstances, but that we can have continued peace. And we looked on um, Good Friday at Jesus through the crucifixion and through his trial and through all the things that he went through, there was only one person in the entire um, scene that was at peace. And that was actually the man being crucified. It wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't Pilate, it wasn't the mob, but only Jesus is the one who had peace. And that is the peace that he's offering. And when he sees Mary, he sees the disciples and he sees Thomas, his encouragement to them is peace be with you. But this peace starts with an identity shift. That when the Bible talks about salvation in a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, it talks about radical things. It talks about being born again. It talks about being resurrected from death to life or being lost and then found or being blind. And now that we see that Jesus is wanting to do a deep work in us, but it is something that we have to ask and seek him for. And no matter what kind of circumstance or maybe what person you identified with, that Pastor John got done explaining Jesus Christ can meet you in that place. I want to read a quick scripture out of Colossians chapter 1, um, verse 19, about this identity. It says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God, you were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. 
Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. See, a personal interaction with Jesus, not just in our head like maybe some of the disciples had, but a personal encounter with Jesus shifts our entire identity. The scripture says that we were enemies of God, that we were hostile to God, that our will and God's will was constantly colliding. But yet by the payment of Jesus Christ on the cross, we could move from being enemies and hostile towards God to being friends and not only friends of God, but it says that we could be holy and blameless without spot in his sight. That God could see us with the same righteousness and holiness that he actually sees his own son in Jesus Christ. But that can only happen by grace and through faith. That Many of you have maybe seen this picture where there's um, two sides of a cliff and in between is this deep chasm. And on one side, is a man on the other side is God and there's no way for man to get to God except through the cross and the cross is set in that chasm and that horizontal beam ends up being that bridge from God and man so that they can be reconciled in relationship and this is what Jesus did with all four of these people but in different ways and that's what I want to encourage us with today is that no matter where you are if you ask if you actually seek for Jesus Christ he can meet you Um, where you are and in the struggle that you might find yourself in. First, we see Mary Magdalene, who's, um, as Pastor John said, anxious. She's concerned. She's kind of running around trying to figure things out. And Jesus meets her in a very intimate way, that Jesus actually calls her by name. Before Jesus uses her name, they don't, or she doesn't know who he is. She's confused. But yet when Jesus says, Mary, that's when she says, Rabboni, or teacher, that she recognized Jesus for who he was. One thing I'm so thankful for is that God meets us in a personal way, that God says that he knows the very hairs on our head. He knows when we lie down and we stand up. And for me, I've been through a season that was very debilitating when it came to anxiety and depression. And the thing that got me through that season was having a God, not that I knew about or that was around me, but a God that I knew personally and that personally knew me that could put up with my doubts or put up with my struggles, could walk along with me through my trials and through my suffering. And that's what a personal encounter with Jesus Christ will do. That he's willing to meet you and walk with you through your doubts, through your frustrations. And he's gentle, he's lowly in spirit, and he can lift you up when your heart is, is heavy. The second group of people we see is kind of this analytical um, piece with the disciples running to the tomb. And what I love about the Bible, it is the most logical and um, well-shaped worldview that has ever existed because it came from God. And many people, like Pastor John said, never take the time to see how logical the Bible really is and how it fits together. And one thing that we wanna do for those of you who've maybe had your questions about Christianity and who God is, and maybe you've pushed those aside, that sometimes you need a process. It isn't always a one-time encounter. It isn't always just a church service that makes you emotional. Some of us may not be as emotional as others. And we need that time to really search the scriptures and search out who God is. And I wanna promise you that if you seek God in the scriptures and you would allow us to come alongside you and walk through those questions, I know that you will find the truth of Jesus Christ and you will have a deep encounter with him personally. The third uh, group of people we have are maybe those who are afraid and there's fear, there's trepidation in them and stepping into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I heard a guy say one time, I kind of liked it. He said, there's three groups of people. Um, There's a group of people who are afraid. There's a group of people who don't know enough to be afraid. And there's a group of people who know God. 
And those are the three areas we can find ourselves in. Now, sometimes we can waver in between that of not walking in our faith in Christ and find ourselves afraid. But it's one thing to not be afraid because we're ignorant, because we don't know what pain really is like. It's easy to not be afraid. But when we experience intense pain, the only thing that can get us through that is the perfect love of Jesus Christ. The scripture says that love is what casts out our fear. And Jesus had to meet his disciples, sit down, eat a meal with them, talk with them. And he had every right to condemn them and to judge them and to put them down. But instead he didn't. He was gentle, he was lowly, he explained to them, he showed them the holes in his hands and in his side and he led them to repentance and interaction with him. And finally, we got Thomas who despite all the evidence still doesn't believe until he says, I see Jesus Christ. And what I love about this is again, God doesn't, we have to remember God doesn't owe us anything. God does not owe us to be our savior. He does it out of love because he desires to save us, but we haven't earned or deserved anything from God. And Thomas didn't either, but God met Thomas. Jesus met Thomas face to face. And despite Thomas's doubting, Jesus gave him an opportunity to repent, to change and to experience what an, a personal relationship with Jesus was really like to change him from the inside out. And I've seen this time and time again for people who maybe you've done some of these steps, but you really do feel like you need that supernatural encounter with Christ. And I do challenge you to ask him. James says that we do not have because we do not ask. And a lot of times we don't enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ because although we believe, yeah, God can do anything, we never exercise personal faith towards God that Jesus could actually meet us where we're at. And I wanna share two quick stories of um, people that I wish could be here today to share it. But um, one couple who was into Satan worshiping, they, they had worshiped, um, they had been in a, a satanic, satanic cult and they'd been in this for a long time. And they had come in, an encounter with uh, a neighbor who was a Christian and invited them to a worship deal and they heard the gospel and they ended up throwing away all their satanic idols and their drugs and they ended up coming to God and they repented. Now, if you hear their story, it's pretty crazy in the sense of God met them in some very supernatural ways that I myself have not experienced because they had also experienced Satan and demons and things of that nature in a very real and tangible way. And so God met them in something that they could relate to in an experience that could lead them to Jesus Christ that could show them that the gospel was actually greater than what they were worshiping. The second group of people was um, two people who were in drug psychosis. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with drug psychosis, but basically what that means is when you've taken enough drugs, specifically things like methamphetamine, where you've become detached from reality, you cannot differentiate between what's going in on your mind and what's going on in the real world. And so people have conversations with themselves, they'll hurt themselves or hurt other people because they cannot understand the difference between what's going on in their mind and what's actually happening in their life. And I've seen two different groups of these people, one who was in prison and one who was just in a motel room who had a personal interaction with Jesus Christ through the voices they were actually hearing in their head from drug psychosis that God spoke to them through those voices to enter into a relationship with him through the scriptures they got in the book of Matthew and through the gospel, they repented, they changed. Um, both of them had lost relationships, custody of their children, got their children back. They hold jobs. If you saw them today, you would think there's no way this person was out of their right mind because they would seem perfectly normal because they had an interaction with Christ that was supernatural, that was beyond what a human being could do for them. 
And so for each one of us, whether we know it or not, we need that kind of interaction and encounter with Jesus Christ. Whether we're afraid, whether we're doubting, whether we're anxious, whether we just need a little bit more evidence to the scripture. It doesn't have to be um, something as crazy as God speaking to you um, through a voice. But at the same time, some of us, maybe you need that. And maybe this could be a season, this Easter season, to really seek out Christ and ask him to meet you where you're at. Whatever area that may be, I really believe that through the power of the gospel and through the power of prayer, Jesus Christ will meet you um, where you are. So I just want to pray for us as we enter into worship that we would reflect on where am I maybe weak in faith, whether that would be um, never really giving your life to Christ or just wanting to deepen your relationship with Jesus I want to encourage you, if you ask him, if you seek, you will find. Um, so Father God, I just thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, I thank you that you give us an opportunity through your Holy Spirit and through the gospel um, to find you, Lord, despite our skepticism, despite our fear, and despite our fail- failures, Jesus, if we will come to you, Lord, that you will reveal yourself to us, God. So we thank you for all these things and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So four responses to the resurrection. I wonder where you see yourself if maybe you've been in that spot or in that spot of anxiousness, uh, fearfulness, uncertainty, if Jesus can really meet you where you're at and help you through that battle, relieve you from that pressure and stress. And Peter, Peter tells us to cast our anxiety on Jesus because he cares for us. I know he's more than capable of taking that struggle, but it's only going to come as you have an interaction with him, as you invite him into your life and you get to know him personally and allow him to speak into those dark places. Maybe you find yourself in a place of analytical evidence and needing that. Maybe you need to Look into the gospel. Maybe you look, need to look more into the evidence. Start that journey of really digging in, looking at what's available. I'm telling you, as I said before, there's more evidence for the resurrection than anything else that's ever happened in history. There's more evidence than you can imagine. Maybe it's time for you to start to look into that and let God meet you where you're at. Maybe you've had that timid response or in a season like that now, just not as willing to step out, to put your neck out there on the line and say, hey, yeah, I belong to Jesus. I'm one of his. I, I'm following him. I'm trusting in him. You know, really in scripture, one of those moments where people go public with their faith is at baptism. And I know that God's been stirring in our church. There's a group of people that are considering baptism and moving that direction. And maybe it's time for you to take that step. Maybe you need to text into me and say, hey, pastor, I need to talk to you about getting baptized. I know we're going to put a number up on the screen that you can reach out, interact. Wherever you're at, what is the response that you need to to take to the resurrection? Maybe you're in the skeptical seat and you've been kind of hiding behind some questions and saying, no, I just, I don't have the evidence I need. Yet the reality is it's really your heart that's hurting. And you're not sure that Jesus will meet with you and will bring healing and, and will fix what's broken. And it's easier just to keep it all out here and say, no, Jesus, I don't, I don't want you to come in. I'm not going to let you and I don't want you in my life. See, in order to overcome each one of these spots, Jesus is willing to come and meet with you 
as Pastor Luke said, if you'll just ask him, he will. But have you? Maybe this Easter is your time to open up your life and say, Jesus, I'm not sure if you really can meet me. I'm not sure you can meet the need that I have, but I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna give you a chance. I'm gonna open my life to you. If that's you today, I just wanna call you to take that step. Don't let another Easter go, keeping Jesus at bay or allowing your fear, anxiety, um, letting your fear and your timidity keep you from interacting with Jesus. Just ask. The Bible says that God will reveal him to us. He'll reveal himself to us if we seek him, if we pursue him. I wonder if you'd be willing to do that this year. Take that step. I want to pray for you because I know that I would not be here if I hadn't experienced and didn't experience the power of God in my life. I wouldn't be here. I'd be doing something else uh, on an Easter morning. But the reason I'm here is because I know that the risen Christ is real. He really did rise from the dead. He really is the son of God. He really did die for my sins. I've experienced that forgiveness and healing. He continues to walk with me, help infuse power into my life that I need because I'm weak and I struggle and yet I need him. And if I didn't know that I know that he's there, I wouldn't be here. And so I want you to have that same encounter, that same experience, I want you to know. And so let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for coming to us and for coming in power and and in, in humility and in sacrificing yourself, paying for our sin so that we could experience forgiveness, we could experience life, we could be made new. Father, I pray for each person here, whatever their issue is, whatever the response they've had to you that is less than an encounter with you, I just pray over them right now that they would open their heart to you, that they would allow you to meet that need. Jesus, it never ceases to amaze me that you can interact with each one of us at the same time, personally and intimately. God, we need your touch. We need your presence. We need to know you. And so I pray that over this room and over each person here, that even in this moment, they might experience the power of your presence in their life. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.